On the night on the night of July 27th, 1996, a much younger version of me was walking through Atlanta's Olympic Centennial Park. And in our group of about 50, there was a younger version of Susan Mamarian, and I was about three days away from proposing to her. And as we got on our group, as we got on the MARTA, the Metro Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, to drive north to Kennesaw, where we were staying with these college students, um, our best estimate was that uh, this event occurred. We were about 150 yards from it and five to 10 minutes ahead of it when the bomb went off. And that summer, this bomb, many of you will remember, was famous and it was fatal. It was famous because the whole world was watching the Olympics and it was fatal because uh, over 100 were injured but two were killed on that night. And we all know, tragically, as we look at the world that we live in, that a bomb can be many things. It can be powerful, it can be destructive, and people take notice. And flipping that... Think about it in a positive way, not in a tragic way, but in a terrific way. The same can be true of joy. I'd say to you this morning as we wrap up Philippians, hopefully not wrapping up joy, we'll still be about joy in Jesus around here, but joy is that thing. Joy is a bomb, and it's powerful, and it's disruptive, and people tend to take notice when there's joy. Now, pause for a moment because there's sadness that surrounds us. I have been clued in and will tonight and the next couple of Sunday nights to CNN. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, my preacher watches CNN. He better tune it into Fox or I'm changing churches. But there's just a special documentary. Don't judge me, okay, on where I get some of my programming, okay? Come back next week. But there is a temporary series, a multi-week series on the history of comedy. Have any of you seen this or know that it's out there? And tonight or the next Sunday night, they're uh, talking about the sadness that surrounds us and talking about comedic legends like uh, John Belushi and Chris Farley and Phil Hartman and Bernie Mac and Robin Williams. Robin Williams. People who brought so much joy and laughter to us, but who themselves died early and died tragically with deep darkness inside of them. And so when we talk about joy, uh, the older I get, the more that I pastor, I'm very well aware that joy can come across and it can even hurt people when you talk about joy. It can sound so trite and so untrue and can be offensive because of the sadness that surrounds us and the sadness that can be in us. In my younger days, I, uh, sorry babe, but I had a girlfriend and she worked at a Christian bookstore. And I was about 17 years old and made a pretty astute observation for a 17-year-old when I went to see her one day. I said, it's funny they call this a Christian bookstore because they really don't sell many books. And I looked around and it was mostly t-shirts and little toys and trinkets and bumper stickers and coffee mugs, just a lot of coffee cups. And I noticed that there's kind of a version of what I call today, I even grasped it as a teenager, but what I call today coffee cup Christianity. You know what I'm talking about. And only certain verses make it on coffee cups. 
notice that? Like Philippians, we're in Philippians, we're wrapping up in chapter 4. And Philippians 4.13 is a coffee cup version of Christianity. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what about Jeremiah 29.11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. That's always on there. And I was thinking, because I have a kind of a dark sense of humor at times, I was thinking, you know, someone ought to come out with a line of coffee cup Christianity with verses that would never make the coffee mugs, right? Like Deuteronomy 28.35, the Lord will afflict your legs and knees with boils. It will spread from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. That would never make a coffee cup mug, right? And in the Psalms, in the Psalms, there are some prayers in the, in the Psalms. Scholars have a special name for it. But uh, there are prayers of, that go like this where David and some other guys pray, were praying prayers like, oh, God, that guy, kill him. All right? I, want him. I want him slaughtered. Like Psalm 58, 8. You, like a slug, you will dissolve in slime. How about Psalm 55, 15? May my betrayals, Lord, just haul my betrayers, haul them off into hell. Verses that would never make a coffee cup, right? If it's your first time at Fauner Church, I'm sorry. This sermon will get better. But I was just thinking that'd be a great way to maybe make a small profit, right? In time for Christmas is to get some coffee cups with verses that would never make it. And here's what I'm saying today. I'm trying to make a point. I hope I'll connect in just a second. Is that coffee cup Christianity doesn't cut it, does it? You're not going to get through college with coffee cup Christianity. Have you ever been at a place and it's very painful? And in the painful place... Someone shares a happy, shiny Bible verse with you. And, and hear me, let, let's get some context of this. Like the person who shared it with you, they love you. And it's in the Bible, so it's true. But it didn't connect with you well, right? It just seemed like a shallow sentiment, not a deep virtue. In fact, it hurts you even worse. And what somebody needs, dial into this, okay? Those of you who are kind of lacking with emotional intelligence. What per people need at times when they're going through something very dark, very difficult, is not a truth bomb, okay? They need grace. They need your presence. And then, in time, share the beautiful goodness and truth of Scripture with them. Maybe you've been there, as I have been recently, a part of a text thread. That's how we communicate today, right? Are you, are you in text threads? Are you in too many text threads, right? You can't drop out of this conversation because people will see that you drop out of the conversation, and they'll be hurt by that, I found out painfully. But I was in a text thread recently where someone, uh, no, nothing funny about this, someone said, would you pray, would y'all pray for me? I'm walking through something very difficult. And I waited and Pretty quickly, a response came in and said, God is good. God is faithful. No weapon formed against you will prosper. But if you've been in that dark, difficult situation, you're on the other side of it. It can feel like, I mean, you're inside, you're going, it doesn't feel like God is good. It doesn't feel like God is faithful. It feels like the weapons formed against me are prospering quite well. And so coffee cup Christianity just doesn't seem to cut it, does it? And in Philippians, we get a book about joy. And God, through a man named Paul, a brilliant thinker, God gives us this message. In one verse alone, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Philippians 4.4, 4, it says, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know when you repeat something, 
there's emphasis there. If you're a teacher, a preacher, parent, whatever, you, you emphasize something, you repeat it, that's what you're doing. You're saying, hey, get this. It's really important. You're not wasting those words. You're adding greater validity to them. And so to quote C.S. Lewis, joy is the serious business of heaven. God is serious about joy, and it's a choice that you can make even in the most difficult of circumstances. And so what I want to say secondly about joy is this idea. It's from an author who's a favorite of mine, a guy named Lewis Smeads. And he wrote this, the test of authentic joy is dot, dot, dot. It is compatible with deep suffering. There's a man named Horatio Spafford. Does that ring a bell? It does with some of you. Horatio Spafford and his wife lost a son, a young boy, to scarlet fever. And in his deep mourning, he was a very wealthy Chicago, wealthy Chicago businessman. And in his grief and in his mourning, he sends his wife and his four daughters on a European vacation. And as they set sail in this ship, they encounter a storm deep into the Atlantic. And the ship sinks. His wife survives, but he loses all four daughters. And in his ensuing mission to get to his wife, the captain at his request sailing the same route across the Atlantic, true story, points to the waters at his request. The waters where his daughters drown. He goes up to the top deck, Horatio Spafford, and he looks out and he sees the sea billows roll. And the words that come to his heart are the words that he put on paper, words that everybody in the room has heard before. It is well with my soul. How in the world can he feel that and write that and sing that? The test of authentic joy is it is compatible with deep suffering. I was sharing with a pastor, a friend of mine out of state, uh, some pictures, some video van of our trip to the Dominican Republic and was doing some God bragging on our church and just the prayerful mission that we're in and just the fun that we had and was showing him some of the people that we met and the home that we got ready for Chris and Jordan Mixon and their kids as they go next month to live there and serve with Hispaniola Mountain Ministry. And we were exchanging messages. I guess he was trying to pastor one-up me, but he sent me a video of his time in Uganda at an orphanage. And in this orphanage, and I just got on the same page with him, but in this orphanage, most of the children there had lost a parent. They had died of AIDS. But you see in this video, it moved me, just physically, emotionally moved me to the point of tears. But to see these children sing with joy, it reminds me of the words of Peter who wrote in the midst of suffering in 1 Peter 1 about a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That Greek word in the New Testament, glory, is weight. In other words, this joy is substantive. And you can't even describe it. It's unspeakable. And I watched these Ugandan children sing with joy that I wish some of us had. Fondren Church has a treasure in Laura McAlpin. Sorry, Laura, you didn't see this coming. But last night, uh, before a wedding, we were right, beyond, right behind this wall just talking. And she said, Robert, I'm really enjoying this series on joy. I'm serious about the joy that Jesus gives me. And she was all up in my face, spitting her joy, you know, and everything. Y'all know Laura, right? I'm like, step back and tell me more. But here's what I want you to know about Laura. I see this, and I think of her. 
This week, yet again, I watched Laura go to someone in deep loss. Like she was busy. She was up here busy. She was busy with Jackson Public Schools. She was all kind of busy, but she stopped what she was doing to go across the street to sit down with someone who just miscarried a baby. And that's a loss that she's known more than once. But Laura is a model to me, an example to me and to us. And if you know her and love her, we've been blessed by her, haven't we? This is pain that she has known, but it goes right alongside of joy. She's a treasure in my life and in the life of our church. And authentic joy, it is compatible with deep grief. So Philippians chapter 4, it's taken me a few minutes to say this, but turn there. If you brought a Bible or have access to one, if you hadn't, we're going to put some verses up on the screen in a moment, as is our custom. There is a whole branch of vocation. Some of you perhaps make a living doing this. Some of you maybe are studying this. But there's a branch called marketing. And we're aware of this, but we're probably not aware subconsciously of its effect on us. And marketing does this. Marketing creates a need that you didn't know you had. Okay, how many of you have been to Walmart or for your upscale people, Target, and when you go in there, right, you didn't know you needed all that stuff, right? You busted up in the store to get a couple of items, and it's not that you're that impulsive. You just didn't know that you needed all this stuff, and so you bought all this stuff, didn't you? Uh, on Amazon, okay, Amazon, there's dangerous words. You, you go and you buy a product, okay? We're all going to work for Amazon one day soon, right? Amazon, right, you, you purchase a product and then you scroll down. Don't scroll down. And at the bottom when you scroll down are the very dangerous words that have some of you in debt and marital trouble right now. The, the, the customers who bought this product also liked dot, 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 right? That, that's gotten you in trouble, okay, because you scroll down. But there's this need, and marketing creates this effect. This is a pithy quote from me. Man, I didn't even know that I needed that until I saw that, and now that I've seen that, I can't live without that. We think that way, don't we? Oh, it just creates this need. I just, I need to have that. And it's, it's uh, to use the ancient words of Solomon, it's chasing after the wind. If I can buy this, try this, travel there, I will then be happy. I will be satisfied. And we all are afflicted with the law of diminishing returns. It, the things, as we mentioned last week, it gives us happiness for a moment, but it doesn't satisfy as much as we thought or as long as we wanted it to. And we're left feeling a little bit empty But look, there's a whole industry that spends billions of dollars annually to breed discontentment. And can I just say before you today, it's working. It's working. Before Amazon, let's kick it back old school, there were infomercials, okay? Anybody feel me on infomercials? They still exist. They prey on you late at night when you're not thinking your best thoughts. You're being in a semi-vegetative state in front of the television. That's not your best self, okay? Can I tell you that? That is not your best self. Call me, if you will. I'll put my number up later. Call me in those late-night moments, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll quote a verse to you or something. But, like, you're watching these infomercials, and have you ever purchased something by infomercial? Like, you called the number. Okay, I know I'm kicking it back old school, but you, like, you, how many of you, how many of you bought a Snuggie? Raise your hand if you would. Okay, I see a few hands. And that, look, you're, okay, proud people, not afraid to admit. Anybody in the balcony buy a Snuggie? Yeah, right back there, a couple of you. Okay, uh, why? <laughs> like you, I, I don't pretend to know you, but like uh, you had a sweater and you had a blanket. All right, why did you have to blend the two? Why did you need a blanket with sleeves? Why did you, why did you do that? In the 70s, there was the Thigh Master. 
Suzanne Summers. How many of you bought a thigh mat? Don't, don't raise your hand because <laughs> honestly, people look at your thighs in church. But like Suzanne Summers, uh, I read about her the other day. She stopped counting after like 10 million, right? There was the bamboo steamer and the Ginsu knives, the shake weight. Did you buy the shake? That was probably the dumbest. And then the George Foreman grill, the low-fat grill, right? George Foreman, who had eight sons and named them all George. I love that guy. But I didn't buy the grill, right? That's my kind of guy, but I didn't buy his grill. Like, uh, how about the clapper, all right? Clap on, clap off, right? Yeah, yeah, clap off. We're not going to sing the entire song at church, Jennifer. We'll let you lead the music today. But look, infomercials tap into that in us. I need to get this. Need to give this a shot. And it breeds discontentment. And though we are making great progress with science, education, medicine, technology, all of that, uh, we're losing our way in so many ways. And we're not finding satisfaction. We're a deeply sad people and deeply discontent people. And into this, a long time ago, this letter, I pray, will speak to you today. Paul said this in Philippians 4. 12, I'm going to emphasize 412B, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, notice the careful words, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He didn't say push a button, turn a knob, pull a lever, wave a magic wand, and instantly you learn this. But he says, I have learned, I have enrolled in the school of life. And in this school of life, when I have had a lot and haven't had much, I have learned the secret, the NIV says, the secret of being content. And so, when you hear about a good secret, what do you want to do? Tell me more. What is the secret of being content? Before we learn what Paul asserts that it is, and you don't have to believe this. Like some of you are new to church. Some of you aren't Christians. You're not, you're not sure what to believe. Look, we, you're welcomed here. We appreciate your presence. We appreciate your thinking, even your cynicism. You are welcome here. But here Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. And no matter what you believe, no matter what your faith is or where you are in your faith journey, I think we can all agree that contentment is very elusive today. Like I said it last week, we are terrible at understanding what makes us happy. Modern people, educated people, I'm looking at you, we're terrible at understanding what makes us happy. Fail, 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 fail. Time and time again we fail. Paul says, I've had a lot, abundance and scarcity, want and need. Man, my life has overflowed. I've been in the pit and I have learned the secret of contentment. There are false gospels. Do you know there are false gospels? Like, be careful if you're church shopping right now. We think you ought to join us, but be careful if you're looking at churches and make sure that the gospel they're preaching is a gospel. And again, if you're visiting and you're not a person of Christian faith or you're not sure what you believe, look, these gospel distortions are also pathways that are erroneous. They're wrong. It's faulty ways of thinking. Here they are. By contrast, there is the prosperity gospel or the pathway of prosperity. And along with that, there is, we're going to put them up in a second, there is the poverty And then there is power. These are pathways or gospels of of ways that we think that we can find happiness and contentment. The prosperity gospel, do you know what that is? 
The prosperity gospel is a version of the gospel, a version of the faith, even the Christian faith, that says if your faith is growing and you're applying, you've kind of cracked the faith code and you have the right kind of faith, then your bank account will go up and so will your bench press. In other words, financially and physically, you will be blessed if you have the right kind of faith. And in, and this is easy to spot, okay, for, for some of us. For some of us, it's not. But for many of us, this is really easy to spot. It's not pious. It's kind of pompous. It's kind of out there. And this pathway, this Christian version of the gospel, the prosperity gospel, cheapens Jesus. In fact, if you follow these guys, you won't end up looking anything like Jesus. No irony there, right? But in the prosperity gospel, Jesus is cheapened to be like a ticket. Okay, so anybody in your pocket or your purse or wallet, do you have a, do you have a ticket? Whoa, do you have a, a ticket to anything? Okay, let's pretend that didn't happen. Y'all back with me here, okay? Oh, demons up in this church today, they're trying to sabotage the sermon. I've lost about half of you, okay? You, you guys are like, y'all, y'all judge me on ADD. Y'all are, you're much worse, okay? All right, guitar fell, everything's okay. Back with me. Where was I? Do you have a ticket? I was asking if, if, you had a, if you had a falling guitar or a ticket. Anybody have a ticket in your, uh, you know, it, it, maybe you've been to the Imagine Dragons concert uh, a couple of weeks ago or more recently, Jason Aldean or something. You know, you've been to something. You ordered your season tickets. You're going to go to Ole Miss and State games this fall, but you're going to come back Sunday for church, right? Nod your head and we'll go faster on the sermon. Like you got a ticket or season tickets. And what does the ticket do? This is easy, y'all. It gets you in. And even though you prize the ticket... You value the ticket, you bought the ticket, you got to hold on to the ticket. It's not about the ticket. And the prosperity gospel makes Jesus the ticket to another treasure. I was talking to a friend not too long ago, and at a church that he was once involved in, the people who were prosperous, the people who drove nice cars, this is getting real, the people who drove, drove nice cars were encouraged to park right next to the building. Why would that be? So that everybody could walk by the nice cars and those nice cars next to the building would serve as a shiny object lesson. If you have the right kind of faith, you will be blessed just like this. Now, the prosperity gospel sucks in a whole lot of people, but they're going to have problems when they look at Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 says the following. Some of you know this. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, that's Him, He has no place to lay His head. Can someone translate that for us? Anybody? Jesus is saying what? He's saying, I'm homeless. All right? That presents a problem. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, just to teach us, like I want you to know what Scripture teaches. It teaches us that Jesus wasn't, you ready for this? He wasn't good looking and popular. Isaiah 53, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Listen to this part. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Trouble for the prosperity gospel. Big trouble. But the flip of that is, you say if it's not the prosperity gospel, then oh I know, it's the poverty gospel. It's the poverty pathway. As your faith increases, your bank account decreases. Now, this 
pathway, this gospel, has the distinction of looking and sounding good. It's more subtle. Okay, prosperity gospel, uh, you can tell those guys. They often, uh, they're pastors, and they preach in $10,000 suits. They stand on a gold stage, and they ask people for their money to support their lifestyle. And one man recently said, Jesus would have a plane if he was here today. He wouldn't fly coach or first class. He would have his own private plane. And this prosperity gospel preacher on the backs of most who are poor is now buying his fourth plane in the multi-million dollar category. I don't know about y'all, but that's kind of easy to spot. All right? That's pretty easy. But the poverty gospel is more pious looking, more subtle in how it sounds. And here's the falseness of it. The falseness of it is that Jesus cares so, the most about our deprivation. And where really, where do we get that? Look at Matthew chapter 7. Let me tell you about the heart of our Heavenly Father. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good, give good gifts to those who ask him? What's in the heart of the Father to give you good gifts? So if we land on the poverty, if we take an extreme version and go the other way and think that what matters is deprivation, we're missing the heart of God. God gives His children good gifts. How many fathers in the room, how many of you have given your children some pretty good gifts? Okay, God wants to do better. The people of Israel, God led them to the promised land. And how was the promised land described. It was described as the land flowing with milk and honey. I can still hear a guy named Jack Crystal call ball games and refer to the end zone as the land of milk and honey, which Mississippi State doesn't get to very often. But anyway, it's this place of what? Of good things. It's a good place with good things. A land flowing, notice the word flowing, with milk and honey. Heaven is described as a place in the Bible of joy and feasting and plenty. In other words, a good place with good things. Both prosperity and poverty are a false gospel. Okay, it's neither one of those, but it's something in the middle. It's power. Now, we've been learning, if you've been here or listened online, we've been learning that the letter to the Philippians was written by Paul, AD 60, 62, somewhere in there. That's pretty precise. And it was written from a prison cell where he was chained to a secret service, if you will, of, of Caesar's day. And Paul writes this letter uh, with Silas to the church that partnered with him. They were joyful people, grateful people, generous people. And they were given their finances and their resources and their prayer. And with joy, Paul thinks of them. And he writes to them with Silas. He says, we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. In other words, the bondservant, the idea there is they've willfully chosen to give up their lives. To be a slave of someone that they trust. Like they trust this man, Jesus, and they give themselves fully to him. And in this letter, Philippi was, the object there was the church started by Paul and Silas and some people, Lydia, a a wealthy entrepreneur, businesswoman, um, a slave girl possessed by a demon that was going around the town uh, telling people their fortune. And Paul and Silas, the scripture tells us in Acts 16, Paul was annoyed and he turned around and brought God's healing to this this young slave girl that was demon-possessed. And the owners of this girl... The girl had owners who profited off her, and the owners of this girl didn't like it, and they went after Paul and Silas and threw them in jail because that messed up their economy. 
And so Paul's writing this, and he's writing it to a very status-centered society, and he's saying, here is this joy, this joy that you can have, but it is not found in the power structure of our day. A Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, said this, look within yourselves. Okay, in, in the, remember uh, Philippi was in Macedonia, Macedonia, a Roman colony, and the Romans had big philosophers. They had Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers, and Stoicism was really big, and Stoicism was a philosophy that has actually uh, had a resurgence today. And in Sto- I'm, I'm telling you, uh, about to show you, in Stoicism, Stoicism has a couple of big tenets. One of them is that it, it minimizes external circumstances and it elevates self. And Marcus Aurelius of his day said, look within yourself, that power source within, and worship it sincerely. Can you believe he said that? But it's what we do. We live in a society that says, follow your heart. Look within and follow that power source uh, within you. Conor McGregor, any fight fans in the room? Conor McGregor, MMA fighter, said uh, this. uh, There's no talent here. This is hard work. This is an obsession. Talent does not exist. We're all equals as human beings. Really? You could be anyone. Really? If you put in the time, you will reach the top, and that's that. Is it? So I'm not talented. I am obsessed. Later that night, after this fight, and after this quote from Uh, MMA fighter Conor McGregor, LeBron James, who's done some good things recently, LeBron James posted this on Instagram because he agreed with it. Now, what I want to say is there would be a lot more LeBron Jameses, right, if if it was just hard work, right? I would be LeBron James if if okay, but I'm not. Look at me. I'm not six foot eight, two hundred and forty pounds with nine percent body fat. Okay, I'm ten ten point five on the body fat, but I'm not. I'm not LeBron James. And listen, I'm just kind of scanning the room here. You're not either, okay? You're not either. And we do have a couple of fighters in our church who've encouraged me to fight once, and I'm like, no, I'm not getting in the ring. This is my my moneymaker right here. I don't need to prove my manhood by getting in a ring. No, not going to debt, not going to debt. But look, Conor McGregor, LeBron James, listen. Talent matters. Genetics matter. And you can't minimize your circumstances. Can I just tell you in love, that doesn't do you any good. Like, reality is really a friend of yours. We see stoicism uh, in a modern example of Ella from Frozen. Sorry, girls. But you know this. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. I am the one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand, here I stay. Let the storm rage on. The cold can never bother me anyway. I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day. Let the storm rage on. Modern stoicism. Minimize circumstances and elevate self. So to Elsa, I would say, I would say the storm is real. The cold is cold. And the storm can kill you and the cold can freeze you to death. And you know what a hungry person needs? I talked to a homeless person this week, was able to minister to him. You know what a hung, hung, homeless, hungry person needs? Food. Like, don't minimize the sur- A hungry person needs to eat. Say amen, right? Okay, and when your mama insulted you, that hurt you. 
when your dad left you and abandoned you, that scarred you. When that friend stole from you, you didn't perceive that it was wrong. It was wrong. They took something from you. And it does nobody any good. You're not moving toward contentment if you stoically live your life minimizing the external circumstances and elevating yourself. That does you no good. And into this we see. We see this lie that masquerades in front of us. And it's what I mentioned earlier, follow your heart. And it's why at least every few months I happen to quote Jeremiah 17, 9, just because it's so good. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? Let me ask you, have you ever followed your heart into a disaster? Because I have. Have you ever followed your heart somewhere where it immediately led to regret? Because I have. Have you ever followed your heart somewhere where eventually it led to regret? Because I have. And that's what following your heart can do. It doesn't do you any good to buy into the prosperity lie. It doesn't buy you any good to buy into the poverty lie, which, by the way, those people can be the most proud people. Look how I'm serving Jesus. Look what I'm giving up. Look what I don't have. Why do you have that nice thing? Playing judge and lawgiver. Like, stop that. Like, that's hurting up. That's hurting the unity of the church. No good. And so it is this stoicism of minimizing your external circumstances and elevating yourself and following your heart. So then, Paul, as we round toward home, what is the secret of contentment? He points us to the cross. And just as Laura McAlpin was telling me right behind the stage here, the baptistry last night before our wedding, I love this series on joy. I love joy. I'm serious about joy. Jesus gives joy. I would say to you that several, many, many years ago, I got serious about it too. And I, I, what I was learning about myself is that I'm a thinker. Do we have any thinkers in the room? I'm not saying I'm smart. I'm just saying I'm a thinker. And thinkers tend to overthink and overanalyze and thus cloud and complicate life. Anybody with me? And so I took that to Jesus because everything else wasn't working. And I took that to Jesus and I, I needed to learn some perspective. Philippians 4, 10 and 11, let's look at it. You can look down if your Bible's open. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. To be content. And he will go on to say, it's not coffee cup Christianity. And it's not just to be spoken by the guy in the ring with his hands up who won the battle. It's to be spoken in defeat as much as it is in victory. You with me? I have learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse on a billion coffee cups around the world. And so when I was getting serious with Jesus about the gift of joy that he gives, he took me to Matthew 18, where Jesus said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, you religious people, the people who overthink, overanalyze, cloud and complicate life, you're not going to enter the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, and who do you bring over to him? You know? Brought a child over and he said, this, they have the keys to the kingdom. And here's what I've noticed. The people with the most joy are children or people like children. And so let's stop for a second and say, what do they know? 
that we don't know or that we tend to forget. The first thing quickly, because they're playing music. Kids know how to play. And I have uh, been reading a lot of the contemplative authors recently. And one that I was reading this week said this, that unless, until, until we learn to play under the watchful eyes of a loving Heavenly Father, we won't learn to pray. To play. To find joy in the fact that He knows us and loves us and He's watching over us. Look, I need to play and pray. But that's profound to me that I'm not going to learn to pray until I learn to play. And that's what kids know. And kids not only learn to play, they embrace a new perspective. A whole new perspective. That God has got this. That I can give my life to Him and I can fully trust Him. Paul said, this great phrase in Philippians 1.21. I think I shared it last week. You know it. Man, this is powerful. He says, for me to live, or to live as Christ, to die as gain. You ever heard that before? Like, that's crazy right there. Like, that's powerful, dynamic, where people take notice of that. Because Paul's saying, I'll translate it, he's saying, I can't lose. Man, I can't lose. I got a father. I'm a kid. I'm not taking myself too seriously. And I can't lose. If I'm here, I get to preach the gospel in chains and it's going to Rome. I long for it to go to Rome. I didn't, want to, I didn't want it to happen this way. But I long to go to Rome to take the gospel and now it's in the palace of Caesar because I'm in chains and they're hearing the gospel of Jesus. And if I get to live, even if I'm in chains, I get to share the gospel. And if I die, I go and I have Christ. I'm in his presence. I can't lose. And I have heard from a fighter friend or two that the most dangerous guy to fight in the ring is the guy who thinks he can't lose. Because when you play tight and you're thinking about all that could happen and go wrong, you're thinking about comfort and safety, you kind of already lost. And Paul is saying, I cannot lose in Jesus. So we can lose, can't we? So here's the danger of the prosperity gospel. Let's just rebuke it one more time on out of here, okay? It's harmful and it's dangerous when you look at someone and say, if you just had more faith, your depression would go away. If you had more faith, you wouldn't have lost the baby. If you had more faith, you wouldn't have gone bankrupt. That is abusive and it's dangerous. And it's not the gospel because you're left with a couple of results here. There's two options. Number one, when it's not working, you're left saying, it's my fault, so i got to try harder, work harder, do better. Or, dead gummit, I want to cuss, we're left with the option that it's God's fault and he's a liar. And let me just say, that's not the gospel because there's no good news in that. And it's all dependent on you. Your power and mine, it is not sufficient. I'm going to stop preaching if you stand and let me pray.